in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there. Welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with How Stuff Works, and I love all things tech. And I'm continuing the special series coming to you from Las Vegas, Nevada at the IBM Think Conference 2018. And uh, in our last episode, I talked about attending the IBM Research Science Slam, in which several people who have been doing some incredible research into different fields and utilizing technology in interesting ways, took the stage to talk about their work. And it was a fantastic night. I really enjoyed myself. I'm very thankful that I got to attend. I also got a really comfortable seat right up front because uh, I, I I happened to figure out where the main doors were before they opened. That's That's something I'm really proud of, even though it was really anyone could have done it. But I, I managed to get a, a nice big comfy seat. And uh, I chatted a little bit about the uh, the first presenters, but we've got a couple more to talk about today. So we're going to transition into that episode and what else I saw while I was at the IBM Research Science Slam. Hope you enjoy. The next presenter was Tom Zimmerman, who... Uh, um, Ms. Garcia referred to as MacGyver, saying that he could take any two objects and turn it into kind of a microprocessor. Uh, he was credited as a human slash machine devices and paradigm scientist, which honestly did not know was a thing before last night. So this was a, a, a treat for me. He was very expressive, very funny, probably the most humorous of all the presenters who came up there. And he talked about how he made sort of a, a private project for himself and how that turned into something that could be much greater. And he did this by taking an image sensor, essentially the same sort of sensor that you could find in a smartphone uh, for the camera. He took the image sensor and a couple of LEDs and he put it into sort of a, a waterproof container and created a basic 3D microscope. Uh, he used Python, the programming language, to create a method to plot out where things were within a 3D space. So not just the XY coordinates, but also the Z coordinates. If you think of the XYZ axes, he was able to plot all that out. So not just how high up in a picture something is or how low down in the picture something is, but how close or far away that thing is. And he used it to look at the life forms within a single drop of water. And he found this to be Really fascinating watching all these tiny little microscopic life forms moving around and being able to plot where they were and track their progress. And this got him interested in the subject of plankton. Now, as Mr. Zimmerman pointed out, plankton are incredibly important to our, our world. Uh, without plankton, we would find it very, very difficult to exist. Plankton produce two thirds of the oxygen that we breathe. So, you know, plants take carbon dioxide and then they convert that into oxygen. And then we breathe that oxygen. We exhale carbon dioxide. We're all part of that cycle. Well, plankton uh, are responsible for two thirds of that oxygen. So while you might think of all the big forests out there as being really important carbon sinks, and they are, don't get me wrong, we don't want to cut those down. Uh, plankton are even more important. They are huge carbon sinks. They sequester carbon from the ecosystem, which means that they also can counteract 
the, that effect. It, obviously, if we, we keep dumping carbon into the ecosystem, that contributes to climate change. Uh, it uh, contributes to the greenhouse effect, which some people would say is uh, all about global warming. As it turns out, the climate on Earth is more complicated than warming or cooling. That's why a lot of people now call it climate change rather than global warming. But controlling the amount of carbon that we introduce into the ecosystem is incredibly important. And plankton are really good at soaking up carbon. But here's the problem is that we're actually dumping more carbon into the environment than the plankton can easily absorb. And plankton are dying as a result. So we're, we're killing off the life form that is responsible for producing most of the oxygen we breathe. Not only that, but plankton are also the bottom of the food chain over in or very close to the very bottom of the food chain over in the oceans. So they serve as a food source for just about every species of baby fish out there. So if the plankton die off, then the food supply for these fish die off, then the fish die off, then the predators that eat those fish die off, and you start to see the food chain collapse in on itself. Obviously, this is a really bad thing, but it's also uh, a tricky thing to study plankton. Because typically the way scientists would study plankton is they would go out into the field, and by the field I mean the ocean, and they'd take a big net, and they would trawl the ocean, and they would pull up some plankton. They would put this in jars with preservatives, which would kill the plankton, and then they would come back to the lab, and they would study the plankton under a microscope. Zimmerman equated this to someone who is, it's their job to uh, to evaluate, to analyze sports, and they are following a, a football team. And the way they figure out how well the football team performs is they are allowed to go on the football team's bus after a game and take pictures of the football players as they're asleep and then try to analyze how well they play the game based upon those pictures of sleeping people. He said... That's kind of the equivalent of what scientists are having to do with plankton, that if you're only able to study them after they've been preserved and therefore they're no longer alive, you can only gather so much information about them and it's not terribly useful. It would be better if you could study plankton within their own ecosystem. And that brought him back to this, this microscope he had been playing with, this idea he had created. And he said again that the basic parts were all pretty easy to use. You could have an image sensor from a smartphone, a couple of LEDs and a waterproof container. You could program some software, some artificial intelligence software, use uh, chips that were developed for smart cameras that were meant to do things like image recognition, face recognition, you know, the sort of basic artificial intelligence that I talked about in my preview episode, but then reprogram it, retrain the neural network to recognize plankton and to track their behaviors. By looking at those behaviors, you can learn more about that plankton, like how plankton eat other things. And then he gave an example of plankton that like a particular type of algae. And occasionally, this plankton will eat a different type of algae that is capable of creating a toxin, and that toxin uh, more or less makes the plankton drunk. As Zimmerman explained, the plankton on its own would dart all over the place and be able to elude predators because it's able to, to move around quite a bit. But when it gets drunk, when it eats this particular type of algae, it just will swim in a straight line. It's kind of how uh, an intoxicated uh, plankton 
would move around its environment. But if it moves in a straight line, it makes it very easy for predators to eat that plankton. Well, as predators eat the plankton, then that plankton is less capable of eating algae. You know, obviously, because the, the population of the plankton starts to drop, algae has fewer predators of its own, and then its population begins to grow, and then you get algae blooms, and that could be a big problem. So it's better if you're able to monitor the plankton and monitor what's happening in the ecosystem and be able to perhaps intervene if things are not going well. But you can only intervene if you have all the information. You can only make a meaningful and helpful act if you know what's going on. Without that information, you may do more harm than good. So the Zimmerman's point was that we now have the capability of making these tools to gather the information we need to make more responsible choices. And uh, it was a really fascinating way of putting technology in the role of an effective tool for a really difficult problem. I have more to say about the science slam over at the Think 2018 conference, but before I jump into the next little segment, I'd like to take a quick break to thank our sponsor. The next person to take the stage was Francesca Rossi. Francesca Rossi's area of expertise was something that I thought was truly interesting, artificial intelligence ethics. She talked about AI in a way that a lot of people at IBM like to talk about AI. They don't necessarily talk about artificial intelligence. They talk about augmented intelligence. In other words, these are the devices and the programs, the software, the firmware that help us make decisions. They don't necessarily make all the decisions for us. They aren't thinking. They aren't having communications with us. They are guiding us as we try to make decisions. And then we use that information as a tool to help us in our tasks. Uh, so how do we build machines to help people make smarter and more grounded positions and decisions? Uh, artificial intelligence can help solve some of the world's most difficult problems. And Rossi talked about how she's been working in the AI field for decades and that the conversation has gradually shifted during her time and studies of AI. She said that early when she was studying AI, the conversations were all about how can we make it smarter? How can we make these artificially intelligent programs faster, more capable, uh, make decisions more reliably? How do we do that? And so the focus was just on performance. It had nothing to do with the quality of those decisions or maybe the impact those decisions might have on other people, but rather uh, just can we make a machine that's able to to do this task better than the ones we have right now? These days, she said, you know, and back then it was just computer scientists who were having this conversation. These days, she said, there's a, a huge number of disciplines that all get together to talk about these sort of things that not only include computer scientists, but also philosophers, lawyers, economists, policymakers, people who have recognized that machines not only have the capability of making decisions quickly, but that those decisions can have a real effect, positive or negative, on actual human beings out in the real world. And that there has to be some sort of ethical approach to the development of AI if we want AI to actually benefit humanity. One of the big problems, or several of them actually, she mentioned transparency is a huge issue. How do you know 
how the AI arrived at its decision. You want a transparent way of communicating that. Without that, then you just have a black box. You have something that has taken data and produced a result, and you have no idea how it went from A to B. Uh, and, and without knowing, you don't know if the decision is a good one, right? So as AI gets more complex and starts to make more complicated decisions, if you don't have transparency, it's, it's like you're consulting a mysterious oracle and you don't really know if the oracle has his or her act together or is just making stuff up. So transparency is very important. Explainability also very important. Can you explain how the machine came to its conclusions, not just the pathway it took, but how it decided one set of factors was more important than another set of factors. And she also talked about bias. And in fact, most of her conversation was about bias. Bias is prejudice. It could be positive or negative in regards to any particular set of data points. So bias is something that we humans have. Now, it's something that it's a quality we possess. We do get a bias for different things. Uh, we could have a positive experience with a particular thing. Let's, let's take, let's take roller coasters, for example. Let's say that you ride your very first roller coaster when you're a little kid and it's a wonderful trip. It's a wonderful ride. You love it. And then you have sort of a bias toward roller coasters because you love that feeling you had. Or let's say the opposite happened. You ride your first roller coaster and it, it rattles you around a lot, makes you feel sick and you get off that ride and you're decision-making process tells you, hey, this is not for me. Roller coasters are bad. They are not well-designed rides. They hurt. They make me feel sick. I don't like them. They scare me. I'm never riding a roller coaster again. You've created a bias based on that experience. And it may very well be that your bias plays out properly. Uh, it could be that that experience just tells you that this is how you're going to react every single time you move forward with this particular thing. In some cases, that's not a bad thing. And she actually, Rosie talks about that, about how bias is not inherently bad. But when it comes to things like judging people, then obviously that's much more problematic. If you go to a different culture and you encounter something that upsets you, you might end up developing a bias against anyone who comes from that culture. And that's not necessarily representative. It's not fair. It can mean that you then treat an entire group of people unfairly based upon this bias. And that's where the scary part comes in with AI, because while AI is going to follow very specific rules that are set out based upon the AI's programming, an AI can still be biased. Now, that doesn't mean the AI is developing opinions of its own about people. It means that the AI is referencing the data sets that were fed to it. And data sets are created by human beings. If the human beings who create the data sets fail to include enough diversity, enough uh, representation in that data set, then the people who are not represented can be affected negatively. And there are great examples of this out in the world that you can actually see things that have shown that there are problematic implementations of artificial intelligence that do, in fact, indicate a bias is present. Uh, there were stories about facial recognition technology that worked fine if you happen to be a white person. But if you were of any other race, particularly if you were uh, uh, if you were black, then it wasn't working properly. It wasn't detecting people properly. Well, that indicates that perhaps the data set that was used to train that artificial intelligence 
had a lack of representation of people of different races than, than just white people. And it's not necessarily that it was, uh, planned that way or that the people who were designing it were specifically excluding an entire group. There might have been no malicious intent whatsoever, but that doesn't really matter if there was malicious intent from the beginning or not. The effect is the same, whether it was intended to exclude a group or just accidentally excluded a group because the person who was designing the system didn't belong to that group. That lack of diversity creates a bias. And that bias has the potential to negatively impact an entire population of people as a result. This is not a good thing. You want to have AI that is as unbiased as you can possibly be. Now, Rossi argues that in the long run, over years and years and years, we will have an explosion in AI over uh, multiple uh, disciplines, multiple industries. And I completely agree. That is exactly what we're already seeing it. We're seeing AI being developed in all sorts of different ways. And she also argues that the ones that will stick around, the ones we will rely upon, will ultimately be the ones that do not have bias. We will realize that those are the ones that are valuable, and we will abandon all the AI constructs that contain bias. But that's the long run. In the midterm, we're going to have problems. We're going to have AI that because of a lack of diversity in their data sets are not going to be able to handle real world situations that are going to have real world impact on people. So she said it's absolutely imperative that we have these ethical discussions now and start consciously developing AI with an attempt to avoid introducing bias. In order to do that, you have to create multidisciplinary, multi-gender, multi-stakeholder, multicultural teams to develop that artificial intelligence. You have to have this representation and this diversity from the ground level and then build up as you are creating this AI. And only then can you be reasonably certain that you have the representation you need to avoid bias. At that point, you would have an AI that no matter what it was, it was intended to do, will be considered much more trustworthy and beneficial, not just smart, not just efficient. And so I found this to be really a fascinating uh, presentation, again, to to think about how our way of thinking about AI has changed so dramatically over the last couple of decades, and that we've shifted from how can we make this machine think to how can we make sure that this machine is performing in a way that is not inherently unfair to any particular group of people. Um, and obviously, in today's environment, as we get more and more sensitive to this sort of thing, I mean, we have whole sections of the world where people are becoming more um, xenophobic and they're becoming more isolationist. They they are, are banding together with people they identify with, the people that they feel uh, represent who they are. And they are more readily excluding people who don't fit that group. That's a dangerous way of thinking as a dangerous uh, approach. In some cases, it's necessary if you are part of a, a very small population, if you are a minority within a population that is that far outnumbers you, then you might be banding together with other people of your identity, you know, that, that share these cultural or, or ethnic identities that you have in a way of protecting yourself, which is completely understandable. If you are 
vastly outnumbered by others, that's a self-preservation technique. Uh, but then you also have the flip side of it where you have the majority, if they're doing it, then they are more likely to create situations that are uh, disadvantageous or oppressive to those minorities. And so it's it's really important moving forward that we try to break through that, that we try to embrace this sort of multicultural, diverse representative approach so that we don't create inherently unfair, divisive uh, scenarios, whether it's with technology or anything else, honestly. So uh, I really like this presentation. I have a feeling that not everybody would because some people feel very strongly about uh, this sort of uh, xenophobic kind of philosophy. They probably don't even think of themselves as xenophobic. Um, in fact, I would be shocked if they did. But uh, yeah, th- I thought that this was a really valuable talk. We're in the home stretch. We're almost done. But there's still some more to talk about that I saw over at the Science Slam, this incredible evening of science and technology and just geeking out like crazy. Before we conclude, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. The last person to get up and speak was Talia Gershon. She got up to talk about quantum computing and AI challenges. So again, there's some overlap here with some of the previous discussions. She was talking specifically about that uh, example I gave earlier with um, Ms. Garcia, the the uh, polymer chemist, and talked about how using a computer to accurately simulate the bonding of large molecules does grow exponentially as you grow the size of the molecule itself. So if you add more atoms to a molecule, then the amount of computing power it takes to simulate and model that molecule grows uh, dramatically to the point where a even the most powerful supercomputer would find the problem so difficult that it would take ages to create a simulation. So even if you were creating a simulation that was supposed to represent a microsecond of time, it might take days or longer, weeks, to create that simulation. So you're taking, you know, weeks of real time to simulate a microsecond of simulated time. Obviously, this is not an efficient way to go about things. So quantum computing, she argued, could help solve this. And she asked the audience, who here has heard buzz about quantum computing? And, you know, about two thirds of the hands went up in the audience. And then she said, who here feels like they have a really strong grip on what quantum computing is? And then there were maybe a dozen hands still up in the audience. Uh, I wrote how quantum computing works and I did not raise my hand because while I did a lot of research into quantum computing, I felt like my understanding of quantum computing is still in the very, very basic level, uh, largely because there comes a point with quantum mechanics and quantum computers where my understanding hits a wall. And rather than feeling like I really have a grip on what is happening, I'm just communicating what smarter people are telling me quantum computing is all about. But I don't, I feel like I don't have a real grasp of it. However, I say that I also remember distinctly when I first started studying quantum computing, I was also looking into string theory and I watched a documentary in which a leading physicist, a leading expert on string theory said, I, I sometimes get asked at the end of the day when it all boils down, do I really, really understand the science I'm talking about? And my answer has to be, 
Not really. There gets to a point where mathematically I can see what's supposed to be happening, but there's a barrier between the mathematics and my actual human understanding. And I've found some relief in that. Talia Gershon got up and talked about this sort of thing. She talked about how quantum computers encode information into complex quantum states, and then they run uh, quantumized processes on these quantum states. They use a method to measure the final state that results as a part of these quantized calculations, and then they record a result which doesn't necessarily clear it up very much for for us. And in fact, she was doing this to comedic effect, saying that's if you wanted to say it in the basic level, and that's still really complicated. She argues that quantum computing is an interdisciplinary problem, that it requires lots of people working in lots of fields in a very specialized way to make quantum computing possible, because you need quantum physicists who are experts on quantum mechanics to talk about that aspect of quantum computing and quantum information. And they use the language of linear algebra to write out their their work. But then you would need computer scientists to take that linear algebra and translate that into a language that computers can use to actually run processes. So you have to take sort of the formulas created by scientists, uh, quantum scientists, give it to computer scientists who then can transform that into information that computers can actually use. Then you would also need people who are material science uh, experts to actually create the physical quantum computer. You would have to have device manufacturing experts to, uh, to take the, the designs that the material scientists had created and make it a real thing. You'd have to have physicists who would be testing all of this to make sure that it was actually working within the realm of quantum mechanics. You'd have to have electrical controls expertise to be able to create the quantum circuitry. You'd have to have advanced cryogenics to keep the quantum computer cold enough to operate. So she was arguing that all of these things require people with very deep expertise in very specific fields, which makes quantum computing particularly difficult. You can't just have, you know, a small team of experts work together. It used to be way back in the day when you talk about things like the dawn of personal computers, like in the 1970s, you could have a person or a couple of people put together all the different components and make a computer. Uh, to, to, to design and produce a computer. Like think about Apple computers with Jobs and Wozniak working out of a garage and actually designing and building the first Apple computer. That was possible back then. But with quantum computers, you're talking about elements that require such deep knowledge that you have to have an entire fleet of experts across multiple disciplines in order to build an effective quantum computer. To take that and then to build it into a scalable technology is going to require a lot of breakthroughs. Obviously, you can't just ramp that up. You can't just have, well, now we've designed this quantum computer. Let's create an assembly line and churn them out and sell them. Uh, it's it's a huge undertaking. And she talked about a phrase that one of her colleagues would use consistently whenever anyone was working on a quantum computer design, which was, you're thinking too classically. You're limiting yourself to thinking in the old classical physics and classical computer approach to the way we do things. Uh, which works fine if you're working on classical systems, but quantum systems require 
thinking outside of that. It requires a, a stretch. You have to actually go beyond what we typically think about as human beings because the quantum world is not something that we can observe in our day-to-day lives. You know, we observe the classical universe. That's what we that's what our senses are capable of picking up. When you're getting to things that belong to the quantum realm, they don't make sense to us largely because we can't observe them. And because we can't observe them, they do, they don't seem to be part of our realities. So things that we understand, like for instance, if I walk up to a wall and I keep walking, I'm going to slam into that wall. I'm not just going to pass through that wall. I'm going to hit it. It's going to hurt. It's going to stop me. But in the quantum world, you can have a field and anywhere within that field, you could potentially exist, right? So uh, imagine instead of having a physical location that you could identify with like GPS coordinates or something, it's more like you have a big sort of nebulous circle. Within that circle, you could be at any of those points at any given moment. And if you were to take a snapshot of a moment, then yes, you would appear at a very specific point within that circle. But if you took a different snapshot at a different moment, you would be in a totally different part of that circle. Now, in this world, if I were to approach a wall, sometimes within those snapshots, I would, once my circle overlaps the wall and goes on to the other side, so part of my circle is still on the side of the wall that I was on originally, part of my circle now overlaps the other side of the wall, you take a snapshot, sometimes that snapshot is going to show me on the other side of that wall, even though I didn't actually pass through it. I didn't walk through the wall. I just appeared on the other side of the wall because my circle overlapped it. That circle represents the probabilities that I could be in any of those points at any given time. As long as there is probability, that means that at some points I will be in that part of the circle. Now, this actually exists in the quantum world. It exists in our our microprocessors. It's called electron tunneling or quantum tunneling. And this is where you have these gates, these logic gates, that because of the materials that were used and because of their thinness are so thin that when an electron comes up to the gate, there's the possibility that the electron will actually be on the opposite side of the gate, not on the side that's supposed to be on. And that creates electron leakage. This is a bad thing for electronics because electronics is all about the controlled pathway of electrons. And if electrons can sometimes bypass a gate without the gate uh, allowing for this, like it, it's supposed to stop the electron, instead the electron just passes right through because its uh, electron field overlaps where the gate is, then you get errors, you get mistakes. So that is a, a real-world example of how these quantum effects can create problems. But we don't observe these directly because it's on a level, it's on a, a, a scale that's far too small for us to to see. So uh, I found it really interesting to uh, think about that as well, about how this, this strange world that doesn't seem to behave according to physics that we have observed can still have real impacts on us. Uh, obviously using this sort of world to create electronics that we can then use to do all sorts of stuff is pretty complicated. So how do we fix this? Talia Gershon said that one thing we need to do is start in the classroom. We need to teach people how to think outside the classical system. Um, I certainly would have benefited from this when I was a kid. I 
didn't have a whole lot of exposure to quantum physics and quantum mechanics when I was going to school. I had a little bit, but just enough to really confuse me, not enough to get kind of a basic understanding and a feel for things. She said that within five years, you're going to see physics departments and computer science departments and electrical engineering departments and mechanical engineering departments all talking about uh, quantum effects and quantum mechanics, quantum computing, quantum states, and that there will actually be classes on things like designing quantum circuitry and quantum programming. And when we see that, we're going to see a huge development in this space because people who otherwise kind of had to forge a pathway toward quantum computing will now have the torch lifted up by people who were being trained on this from the get-go and therefore will end up having a benefit of the the previous pioneer's knowledge and be able to carry it much further and develop the technology to a point that is really, really useful for all of us. And that was the final presenter that night. And uh, one of the last messages that IBM Research gave that evening was that effective science communication is more critical today than ever before, that science communication is a tricky, difficult thing. We're talking about very hard concepts for some people to understand because they've had limited exposure to those ideas and they're counterintuitive in many cases. So you have to be really good at communicating this to people so they they understand not just what is going on, but why it's important. And that another really critical element is public engagement in science, to create a conversation in science, to, to not just educate the public, but then to invite the public to take part in these conversations because you'll get more representation that way and more... Uh, ideas and more uh, challenges to your notions, which are equally important. And that way you can take part in making the decisions that will create these technologies and ultimately help us move forward. I found that to be really inspiring as well. Well, that wraps up the science slam at the IBM research session that happened on March 19th, 2018. Um, I look forward to attending the conference today. We're getting close to 6 a.m., which means pretty soon I'm going to go hit the gym. And then I'll go to the conference and see what else I can find and who I can talk to. And I hope to record a whole bunch more episodes, special episodes for you in this mini-series about Think 2018, talking about cutting-edge technologies, getting insight into some of the most complicated and fascinating aspects of science and technology and where these might be taking us. I hope you're enjoying the miniseries so far, and I look forward to including more of these. If you guys have suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, I highly recommend that you get in touch with me and let me know. My email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com, or you could drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle for both of those is techstuffhsw. You can follow us on Instagram, see lots of behind-the-scenes goodies that way, and uh, make sure you tune in to twitch.tv slash techstuff. On a typical week, on Wednesdays and Fridays, I record live. I live stream tech stuff, and you can check it out. Just go to twitch.tv slash tech stuff. There's a chat room there. You can participate and say hi to me. I always love seeing people there. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 